Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, hello to everybody out there. I had intended to continue my review of some of Jeff Durbin's preaching on preterism, but I actually couldn't bring myself to do it because I wanted to talk about some of the current events and hopefully do it from a biblical worldview because that's the topic of the day. I mean, nobody really wants to think about preterism at this point in time. They're just, everything else is on our minds with regard to race and with regard to social justice, uh, oppression and whatnot. So I wanted to do a little podcast on this and then hopefully we'll pick back up with our discussion of preterism in a little bit. But the reason I want to talk about it is I'm under no delusion that I am the most eloquent and that my arguments are going to be so superior to what everyone else has done. In fact, there are so many good resources on this already. I've compiled a list on my blog, and I'll link to that in the description of this episode. You can access that, have a lot of resources at your fingertips to read and research deeply on these issues and how they interrelate, critical race theory, intersectionality, all these issues that are super important to understand because this is the culture in which we live. There is a anti-God Marxist agenda that is driving the cultural forces, and Christians need to be aware of that. This is the danger to the church today. Unfortunately, we have kind of ignored it, and some in the church have embraced it. And so I'm not under any delusion, like I said, that I'm going to be giving you something that other people aren't. But I know time is limited, and some people, for whatever reason, choose to listen to this podcast. And so if you aren't looking at some of these other sources... I want to make sure I'm doing my part to help you be aware of some of these arguments and think through these in a biblical fashion. And that's really our goal. So I encourage you to check out the blog post, listen to and read some of those articles. There's great resources available there. And as we think through this together, I would just encourage you to do so in a spirit of humility and to really try to understand that there are two worldviews. Now, there are multiple worldviews, but two worldviews at play here. I'm simplifying a anti-God worldview and a biblical worldview. Those are the, those are the options here with regard to how people are going to perceive this. And I think that that will be helpful to understand as we go through this. Now, as we start off, I'm just going to give some free-flowing thoughts here and work through the issues, and I trust it will be helpful to you. And I have, as far as my outline's concerned, I'm just going to kind of progressively go through kind of the current events and then segue into how we ought to be thinking biblically through this as far as big picture, some of the issues that are behind the current events, because the current events are just symptoms of actual philosophies that are working behind the worldviews of those who are involved. So the initial point, which nobody would disagree on, in fact, everybody claims this as a support for their worldview, is that justice is important. That's what everyone claims, right? And as a Christian, I would also say I support justice, but here's going to be the key distinction is that as a Christian, we must define justice biblically. That is really important. So as this relates to 
the current events of the day, a Christian would 100% affirm that the death of George Floyd was an example of injustice. Absolutely. There, there was nothing, there was no reason he should have died. There was, uh, by, and, and I say that with a qualification. This is also a biblical important mindset to have. And so this is still an ongoing investigation. There's been no, no verdict handed down. The jury has not deliberated over the evidence. All the evidence hasn't been presented. So if something came to, to view where, Hey, George Floyd, uh, had some sort of weapon or there was some complicating factor that we don't know about. Well, sure, we would adjust our opinion, but all the evidence that we have available at the moment would indicate that he died by unnecessary force used by a police officer by the name of Jer- Derek Chauvin. And that is an example of injustice. I think everybody would agree on that. And the issue I think most Christians would would agree with is that the true travesty of it is that this individual was made in the image of God. And so he was it, it according to Genesis 9, it's a it's a travesty to have somebody tarnish those who bear the image of God and to kill them. And so by all accounts and purposes, this police officer is in the wrong, and that's that's an example of injustice. I think we all agree on that. I haven't actually heard anybody who's tried to rationalize that. And so that should be a unifying factor among all of humanity. And yet it's interesting that this situation has led to such a destructive influence in society, but there's a reason behind that too. And so we need to think about it. It's that's kind of a side point, but isn't it interesting that everyone is unanimously agreed that this was an example of injustice and the police officer should be punished, and yet there's still a degrading influence that goes in this, and and we need to talk about that a little bit. So a Christian can affirm that, yes, that was unjust, but a Christian also would affirm that George Floyd was also in the wrong. He was a criminal, okay? So there's no making a hero of a criminal here. Uh, that's not what we would do as a Christian. We we affirm that he is also in the wrong. He was a criminal. He had drugs on him and in him. So he was obvious. And there's evidence that he was using counterfeit money. So he is a criminal doing criminal things. Now, I've heard uh, conflicting reports that, you know, he was supposedly turning his life around and he was a Christian. Well, at least the evidence we have would indicate that is not the fact, and he is a criminal, uh, at least from the evidence that we we see. And that's just another example where the wisdom that we find in Proverbs is very accurate, is that those who commit sin and transgression are the ones who die. And in fact, I was... I was uh, reading in Proverbs five the other day, and this is these two verses jumped out at me. in, in Proverbs five twenty two and twenty three, it says, "The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray." So. What Proverbs is teaching us there is that it's your iniquity and sin which traps you and ends up leading to your demise. So to put it bluntly, I'm not sure I've ever heard it put this way before, but uh, sin is going to kill you, whether it's a police officer who kills you, whether it's a friend who kills you, whether it's your own stupidity that kills you, you know, it sin ends up leading to your demise. If, or to put it in another way, if, if George Floyd was 
you know, in church praying, he wouldn't have run into this kind of situation, right? So we can affirm both of these realities as Christians. We can affirm that, yes, the police officer was in the wrong, and yes, George Floyd was in the wrong. So two two wrongs don't make a right, right? So we can, we can understand this uh, completely. In fact, uh, I think that's often minimized, but we need to acknowledge that as, as believing Christians. The third thing we need to understand about this thinking through this from the Christian standpoint of biblical justice is that there would be no biblical justification for rioting and destroying what belongs to others. In fact, in Proverbs 29, 8, another proverbial insight, it says that scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. And so it's those who are the fools, those who are the scoffers of wisdom that destroy the cities. And we've seen that in many places of the country. And yet there are even among the academic elites of our culture, uh, New York Times op-eds, uh, blog posts being written where this kind of violence is at least rationalized, if not glorified, because of the ultimate end. Now, this is something we're going to talk about a little bit later, but this is part of the movement which we see where absolute truth does not exist, so the end justifies the means. So if you are doing rioting, destroying things to prove your point that this was an unjust act and to try to facilitate change, well, that's justified in a worldview that's pushed by the culture. Because if in any kind of anti-God culture, you don't have an objective morality, then you're going to achieve whatever comes from within. That's the morality that you're working with. And by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but there was a recent Barna poll that uh, surveyed Americans and 58% of Americans, which include Christians, by the way, this is a very scary statistic, 58% of Americans said that truth comes from the inside or is relative. There is There is no absolute truth with regard to that objective standard. So you're really reaping what you sow in the culture. If you have a generation of individuals who believes that the end is completely uh, justifying of the means, then you're going to get all of these chaos. But from a biblical standpoint, we understand that there is an objective standard of right, wrong, private property, etc. And there is no justification for theft, for destruction, all of these things. In fact, I was even reading Exodus 21 this morning and just seeing afresh the ideas of when there is destruction of property, those who are involved in the destruction of the property are mandated to pay that back. That is part of the process of making that right. And so that's that's important. Now, what I want to segue to here with regard to the the definition of biblical justice is this idea of social justice compared to biblical justice. And there's so much we could say about this. And that, that's why I encourage you to check out that blog post with some of these sources, because there is a lot that goes into the cultural push for social justice. And I just have to say, in summary fashion, social justice is not biblical justice. And part of it is because whether or not somebody claims to believe in God or not, the God of the social justice movement is not the God of the Bible. Yeah, that's really important. The God of the social justice movement is not the God of the Bible. And we see that even in how they interpret certain Bible passages. You know, I was just as an example of that just came to mind. I've been hearing a lot about this argument 
that, hey, Jesus destroyed the temple. Well, and really that's, uh, it could be phrased in different ways. Jesus went in and threw over the, destroyed the money changers' possessions, flipping over tables and whatever. Uh, so don't, don't point your finger at these, these protesters who are destroying things because they're being like Jesus. They're enraged and so they're doing stuff like that. Okay. Couple things to note there. It doesn't say that Jesus destroyed anything. Flipping over the tables and driving people out is a little different. There's no, there's nothing that would indicate that there's lasting damage there, first of all. Second of all, I don't understand where the confusion lies since Jesus, as the Messiah, he's the Davidic king, and so he has the obligation to take care of the temple. In the Davidic covenant, you have the Davidic king linked with the upbringing of the temple and the caretaking of the temple. Now, there's no way that you can rationalize and try to make a one-for-one correspondence and say, oh, hey, we have some sort of covenant which mandates that we destroy things if things aren't going our way. That There's a huge logical jump there, which is completely different. It's it's apples and oranges. Jesus has an obligation to do certain things because of who he is. And we have an obligation to do certain things because of who we are. And one of those is specifically defined in as much as it depends upon us, be at peace with all men, et cetera, et cetera, respecting the possessions of others, not being thieves, destroying. It's pretty obvious that there's a disconnect there, but I've, I've seen uh, well-meaning Christians, Christians that I thought were a little more solid using those kinds of arguments on Facebook. And I want to just put that to rest. That's just a very bad argument and we need to uh, label it as such. But as a whole, we need to talk worldview here. The movement behind social justice and the push of the culture to accomplish this assumes and emphasizes the equality of an individual. Now, there's some really good podcasts on this by the Just Thinking podcast episode, Daryl Harrelson and Virgil Walker. I just really encourage you to check those out. They, they do a great job breaking these down. And so I'm just going to sum- summarize it a little bit. In the biblical worldview, we hold that all men are created equal. In fact, that's one of the precepts that the United States was founded upon. All men are created equal, right? But the social justice push is an emphasis to try to create an, an environment of equality. And what that emphasizes is a equality of outcome, essentially. So we would say that everyone deserves the same kinds of opportunities commensurate with where they are and what they've worked for, right? Well, what social justice pushes for is a equality in outcome, meaning that everyone should have the same salary, for example, or everyone should be able to do whatever job they want, or everyone should be able to, you, you name it, have the same access to health care, for example, regardless of whether or not they have, have a certain income or whether or not they are paying things. There's all sorts of equality statements that are made on behalf of social justice indicating that we're pushing toward an equal society. And of course, this is founded in Marxism, right? Because the whole push of Marxist philosophy is that there is no God and people will be happy if there is a equal society, a society made up of equality where there's no differentiation. And so therefore, everyone will be happiest because there's that complete unity. And so that's kind of the driving force behind this. This has been in the universities for years now, and it's making its way into the churches, sadly. In fact, I was just telling somebody the other day that we have seminaries now that are being marked by some of this Marxist doctrine. 
And there's, if you want more on that, you can definitely find it. There's plenty of resources uh, on that show, showing that. Now, one of the one of the things we need to point out, and again, this is just summary fashion, and this is again just illustrating the difference between social justice and biblical justice. Social justice has been and always will be the driving force of tyrants and dictators. I won't read it for you, but go to the blog. You can check out some of the articles by an individual by the name of Samuel Say. He has written some phenomenal articles, one of my favorite articles on social justice and how it's a threat to human rights is written by him. Uh, and one of the things he points out is that, is that individuals like Hitler, uh, Stalin, some of these just insane, uh, evil dictators, they utilized this drive for social justice. They utilized this, this push to create equality and to get rid of the oppressors and elevate those who are the victims, the oppressed, as a way to essentially take over society and to strip the rights away from other individuals. And so we need to understand that this is a dangerous philosophy. And not just that, but social justice has also been the easiest way that liberalism has made inroads into the church. I have some... some individuals that I've spoken at length with this issue and and it's it's kind of scary just seeing where they have come from different churches and seeing how this the the churches that they have fled where these issues have become prevalent and now in the churches that they're at they're seeing it again and so it's it's really kind of a concerning reality and so we need to be aware that social justice isn't biblical justice. Now, social justice, now there are things about social justice that are good. For example, you know, we, we want to stand up for the poor. We want to make sure the poor have their rights heard, etc. But social justice is, is bigger than that. It's larger than that. It's, it's not equated with biblical justice. It includes some elements of biblical justice, but for different reasons and for an entirely different agenda. So I can't say too much more about that without taking up the entire episode on that. But if you want more on that, look at the blog post. There are great uh, resources defining social justice and some of the issues uh, along with that. But what I'd like to talk about now is changing gears a little bit because this whole cultural conversation has really brought up the issue of racism and police brutality, the oppression of the, of the black family, etc. Now, one of the things we need to ask right away is what is racism? And I want to say from a biblical perspective, now I've written a blog article on this. You can search my website on it on how the culture has really pushed racism to be a completely different characterization than what it should be. And they've redefined racism so that now most people, when they use the idea of racism, mean something completely different. But when we think about it from a biblical perspective, this is how I would define it, is that first of all, racism is a bit of a misnomer because there's not technically a race, but there's ethnicities of the same human race. So we're all human beings, one race, but Acts 17.26 says that there are many ethnos, there are many nations from, from this one human race. And so there's not different qualities within humanity in the sense that different intellect or whatever, we're all the same, uh, 
all of the DNA for all of humanity was found in Adam and Eve. We'll say it that way. But racism as a sin is essentially, as defined, we could put it this way, it's essentially an intermingling of the biblical sins of pride, partiality, and anger. Simply because of the color of someone's skin. That's how we could define racism. So in and of itself, uh, racism is usually defined as kind of an ethereal target that it's, you, you don't, you, you can't even recognize it until you realize that you committed it or something like that. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But from a biblical perspective, the Bible never identifies racism per se. It identifies pride. It identifies partiality and it identifies anger. If you are sinning in those ways where you think you're better than somebody, you have pride. Well, you confess and forsake that. If you are partial to somebody because of their skin color, that is also sin, right? And anger is also sin. So those, those are identifiably biblically sound markers of what's going on in racism. That's, so if we talk about that, that's how we need to define racism and think through it in, in those terms. Now, I would also say this with that kind of definition, we would have to say, can a black person be racist? Yes, absolutely. A black person can be racist. Can a Japanese person be racist? Oh, yes, absolutely. Can some, can a black person in South Africa be racist towards white people? Well, we actually see examples of that, unfortunately. So, now, again, this is a countercultural definition because most people would say, no, it's impossible for a black person to be racist because they don't have power. And so this is one of the things I point out in my article is that racism is often tied to a position of power. Only those in power can actually be racist. Well, what in the world? That's not that has nothing to do with biblical definitions. Now, sure, we don't expect unbelievers to think any differently about these issues, but Biblically minded Christians, we need to understand it doesn't matter whether you're on the low end of the totem pole or the high end of the totem pole. You can sin and you can sin greatly in these ways by exhibiting pride, partiality or anger. Right. So that would be how I would define biblical racism. Now, when we think through the next part of this. Is there such a thing as systemic racism or is there uh, the big discussion is uh, systemic police brutality against the black population, for example? Okay, so we need to think about these things biblically. And I do think there needs to be an attitude of gentleness and discussion with our brothers and sisters in Christ about this, obviously. Now, I think in some cases there is systemic racism. But that needs to be decided on a case-by-case basis and the facts. Now, some of you are probably like, no, there's no examples of systemic racism. Well, I think I can give you one 100% example that everyone agrees with would be systemic racism, and that would be Planned Parenthood. 100% they are guilty of systemic racism because they are in a, a baby murder factory is what they are. A baby murder factory that is founded by Margaret Sanger, who is on record saying that we need to kill black babies. We need to avoid this population reproducing. That was part of the motivation behind her uh, eugenics, essentially. So the, the very foundation of Planned Parenthood is based on racism in not wanting black people to propagate. So I think there's a lot of evidence for the fact that this organization exists to to suppress black people 
And yet it's so frustrating to see that they are, and they still, by the way, remain the main contributor to the abortion industry. Black families do. And so it's, it's incredibly sad that this is, this is what, what we're dealing with. Now, on the other hand, that's a very clear example where an organization uh, was founded and by the very evidence that exists, the, the murder of more black babies than, you know, any other ethnicity, you're, I think that's very clear evidence that the black population is disproportionately influenced and suffers because of that. Well, so that's systemic racism. But what about other things? There are a lot of examples like police brutality that are thrown around. And I don't want to talk too much about this, but I guess I I should give just a couple comments on this. I know it's a very emotional issue for people, but this is where we need to think very critically. And the I'll, I'll say it this way. The, the narrative that is being pushed by mainstream media and the culture at large is that there is just an incredible disparity, uh, that police officers are out, you know, hunting down black people. I think LeBron James said something about, about that is that the, the police are hunting down, uh, black people. Black people, when they leave their house are, are just being hunted. You know, that's, that's, that, that'd be the idea. Okay. Well, there's, there's so much good stuff on this out there as well. I don't want to, you know, uh, just repeat all of it, but I will say that when you think about just the stats that we have available, I don't think that there's actually any statistical concrete evidence that say black people disproportionately or without cause are suffering at the hands of police. In fact, what we would see is evidence to indicate that there's actually a far greater, uh, far more significant problem in the black community with regard to their misbehavior. And in fact, one of the things, again, I, I re- refer to Samuel Say. He's just such a phenomenal writer. He's, he's a black individual who resides in Canada. And he's done some amaz- amazing job in just writing and thinking through some of these issues. He wrote a blog article, which I have on the, on the website where he entitles it, Our Fathers, Our Failures. Our Fathers, Our Failures by the name of Samuel Say. And one of the things that he points out is that statistically, if you compare American, the American black community and the Canadian black community, if, and here's his big uh, presupposition, if slavery is such a detriment to the American race relationships, why is it that Canadian and American black, uh, white disparities are the same? That's, that's his bit because Canada doesn't have the same history that the United States does with regard to black and white populations. And so we would expect that there should be some difference in the, disparities if if slavery is such a big issue because it's always held out as the number one issue which is causing the difference between these issues well one of the things that he points out is that the in in america you have 73 percent 73 percent let me say that a billion more times 73 percent of black children are born to unmarried black women Okay, can I just say that a billion more times, you know, right? 73% of black children are born to unmarried black women compared to 29% of white women. Now, when, when you say that, and the Canadian, uh, demographic is, is very similar. When you think about the statistical analysis of children who grow up 
in a single family home, the statistics point very clearly. In fact, uh, the, the study that he cites is that those children are 20 times, 20 times more likely to develop behavior problems, nine times more likely to not graduate from high school, and two times more likely to engage in early sexual activity than children who are raised in two-parent households. So right away from the outset, from, from birth, from birth, this is the disadvantage. This is, and I would, uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to spend so much time on this, but one of the main issues that I'm trying to point out here, and Samuel Say does it so brilliantly in his articles, is that it's not a systemic oppression by white people against black people or anything like that. It's a problem within the black community. It is. And, and there's, there's work ethic that's involved. The fact that from, from birth, families are, are already being paid by the government, uh, because of pop. There's no incentive. Like I've actually come across certain, certain families that they refuse to get married because if they get married, the government will stop giving them their, their pay. Right. So. In one sense, that could be an illustration of systemic racism where you have the government putting black families at a disadvantage because they refuse to help them solidify their families and grow up in two-parent households. Now, that may be another example of systemic racism, but the the stats of police violence against blacks, and this is where we were going originally, uh, all the stats that you'll read, in fact, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article this this week with an individual who has been studying these statistics her whole life essentially and you look at these you look at these statistics how how they're played out it's well it's a, it's a misnomer it's a misdirect there is no there is no uh statistically verifiable evidence of black people being oppressed by the police in some way in fact it's it's you, and anybody who's who's rational thinking about these reasons, and again, we want to do it in a spirit of gentleness, but but if you think about somebody makes a claim saying, oh, there's a disproportionate percentage of black people who are killed by the police than white people. Okay, what's the what are the next questions you ask? The next questions you should ask are, well, how many black people commit high violence crimes? Uh, how many black people commit crimes in general? Like, what's the disproportionate percentage for, for that? Now, this isn't what's talked about in the media, but the most recent statistics that I came across were that if the black percentage of Americans are 13%, the black population is, we can attribute the black population for 53% of the violent crimes in the United States. That's incredible. Now, Actually, one of the things that was pointed out by Ben Shapiro, now he's obviously a Jew, he is not, uh, he is not a part of the Christian church, but one of the things that he pointed out, he's, uh, he's up to date on a lot of these statistics and things like that. One of the things that he pointed out, helpfully, I think, is that 13% is the entirety of the black population, but if you think about who's actually perpetrating the crimes, it would be young black men, which would be a small, uh, a smaller percentage of that 13%. So, you know, if we're generous, maybe we could even say nine or 10% of the population in America commits over half of the violent crimes in America. How insane is that? And so when you think about it, that is, that's a problem. 
Now, if you, if you cite those statistics, you're, you're called racist. You're called racist, but you can cite statistics about how many black people the police has killed, etc. Now, granted, uh, it's not my goal to get into all these statistics, and I didn't even have um, these written down on my outline or anything like that. I just wanted to illustrate the fact that we can't get caught up in the cultural push. As Christians, we need to be reasonable. We need to think through the issue, and we need to understand this is the this is basically the whole point. I could have just skipped everything I said. And said, we need to understand that the real issue is the, is the sinful heart of humanity. That's the real issue. That's the real issue. And that's an individual problem. That's an individual problem. We have sinful hearts on an individual level. And until that changes, there, there will be sin propagated throughout society in, in many different ways. And so I think, on the issues of systemic racism, I think it's important to think biblically. I think it's important to think rationally about these things. And what that often looks like, no surprise here, is that it's very countercultural to think through these issues in, in these ways. So moving on past that, there's more that you, if you look, if you Google those issues, you'll find plenty of uh, good sources on those issues. I want to talk about the issue of what I would label ethnic Gnosticism. Ethnic Gnosticism. Now, when you think about ethnic Gnosticism, this was a term that was originally coined by Vody Bauckham, who himself is a black individual. And when, when we use this term, part of the attraction or reason we would use it is because there's a push that says you can't speak to this issue of race or racism unless you have lived the experience. You know, that's, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, talk about this or you can't, be critical of this issue unless you've walked a mile in the shoes of a black man or something like that, right? That's, that's this idea. Or you can't, you can't say what racism is or isn't unless you are black and you've experienced these issues. Well, and I love my brother Vody Bakum on this because he's just so clear. It is that this, this is Gnosticism. Now, the reason Gnosticism is used is because obviously that's a early Christian heresy. I say Christian is, it's an early heresy that rose up within the church and battled against Orthodox Christianity in the sense that it, there was a specialized knowledge that that's what Gnosticism was known for is that these individuals said, no, sorry, you, you can't be in the inner circle unless you, unless you know these things. And there's no way you can, you, you can't talk about this because you don't have the inner knowledge, basically that there, there's some crossover between that. And so I think that there's some, thematic overlap between this. And I would just say very simply, one of the, one of the reasons we need to be against this kind of idea. Now, let me say, first of all, that there is value to experience, right? And there are certain things that my, my, uh, black brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced that I haven't experienced. Okay. And I fully acknowledge that, but the issue that I can't speak on this issue or if you're if you're not black, you can't speak on this issue is complete lunacy. Just think about this from a thought experiment. OK, sure. Experience is one way you can know things. But how else can you know things? Well, Proverbs is replete with this, right? You know things through the teachings of others. You know things through revelation. Let's say it that way. Revelation. If God saw fit to reveal everything that he wanted to in a book through special revelation, 
How can we deny that special revelation as being inferior to experience? See, we need to be careful that we don't buy into this cultural idea that emotions and experience are the highest interpretive value. We can't do that. From Christian worldview, we would say that scripture is always superior. And so I will always have an opinion on all these cultural issues. And I hope that God gives me grace to not be, not to be afraid to share that opinion because my opinions are going to be founded in scripture and on the basis of reason and on the basis of what God has revealed. And we want to use the way that the Bible describes sin. And we want to use the way that the Bible indicates our societies should function. That is what we want to be thinking about. We, we don't want to start from experience. That's, that, that's the, that, that's really the modern heresy, uh, in our culture is, is the value of experience and how that's elevated over all other types of knowledge. And so I just want, want to point out that scripture itself, very, this is the basic verse we always learn in, in Awana and whatever. Second Timothy, second Timothy 3, 16 through 17, right? We know that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for all these things, doctrine, reproof, learning, instruction. And it's so that the man may be, man of God may be thoroughly equipped, completed for everything, for every good work. Now, when we think about those very simple words, there's a profound truth, right? The sufficiency of scripture. And so the idea that we can't understand or we can't speak to an issue because we haven't dealt with it. Well, that's, that's ludicrous in the sense that scripture is our, is our guide, right? Experience does not trump special revelation with regard to that. Now, again, I, I come back on the other side and say there are benefits to thinking through and talking about experience. I don't deny that. There are some amazing things that I've learned through experiencing it that although I already knew it to be intellectually true from scripture, I, by experiencing it, it was further solidified, not necessarily in a new way, but in a refreshing uh, way, which made it all the more vivid. We can say it that way. And so I understand that. I always, for example, a very easy example, I always knew what it meant to be a good husband. I did. I mean, I'm not saying that out of pride. I'm saying that because my parents were really good at teaching me and the church that I went to was really good at exemplifying that and they were really good at teaching scripture. I always knew what being a good husband was. I, I I knew that, not because of how great I am. No, because of what scripture said and what people taught me. But when I became a husband, it, that, that experience helped solidify what that looks like in everyday life. But that didn't mean that I couldn't talk about marriage before I got married. That's stupid. Now, at the same time, there is benefit to listening to people who have been married a long time. And they can, they can add these details in. We acknowledge that. So I'm not saying there's no benefit to experience whatsoever, but I am saying do not buy into the cultural lie that you have no authority or right to speak or think on these issues because you don't have a certain skin color. That's what I love about, you know, our brothers from the Just Thinking podcast. I just want to plug their podcast as much as possible. Really got to be listening to these guys. They are so solid in their theology and, and biblical perspective on these issues and just being really helpful. I just really listen to some of their podcasts and their most recent one on, on George Floyd and the protests was, was just spot on. Love these brothers doing it from a biblical perspective. Um, just really thankful for them. They are, they are a benediction to the church to be sure. 
All right, one last thing I want to talk about, and this is this is near and dear to me because I think a lot of well-meaning Christians have slipped a little bit here and and gone gone astray. And so I want to give my perspective. And again, there's some wisdom involved here. So so I know not everyone's going to see it eye to eye to me, but I I, I think this will be a healthy discussion for us to have. So the question would be: Should a Christian protest? Should a Christian be associated with the Black Lives Matter movement? Now, first thing off, riots are wrong, right? I think every Christian should acknowledge that. Now, it does surprise me that some Christians I've seen on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they have been arguing that the riots are justified, right? Well, that's what the culture is doing. Biblically speaking, there's no way to defend that position. No way. You have to say that the riots are wrong, unjustifiable, and sinful. Okay, so riots are wrong. So if you're associated with something like that, you need to repent 100% right away. Now, the other thing I would ask with regard to this, to clarify this, is what are you protesting? If you're out there with a sign and you're protesting something, what are you protesting? Are you protesting police brutality? Are you protesting systemic racism? Well, we've talked a little bit about that and you need to be, you need to be careful because you may be deceived. You may be deceived. Maybe there is not the police brutality that you thought there was, at least systemically so, right? You need to, if that's, if police brutality is why you're protesting, that uh, is a lie you've been fed, at least statistically. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't occur in some instances, right? But that's, a Christian evaluates things on a case-by-case basis. And unless there's evidence, and by the way, I think one of the helpful ways to evaluate the idea of systemic racism would be on whether there are laws in place which which are detrimental to one population discriminately so or whether it affects somebody in a disparate way with no rationale so for example uh, a lot of people say the prison laws are are racist against black people because more people go to jail than than white people or whatever. Well, let's use that same logic with men. Uh, more men go to prison for violent offenses than women. Does that mean that the laws of prison are, uh, are sexist against men? Well, no. Men inherently commit more violent acts than women. That's part of the men's DNA because left unchecked, the sinful tendencies have a greater expulsion to do so in violent ways. Not saying women can't be violent, but that is just how God has created men and women. Men have the capacity and the strength to do much more damage. So we can't use that reasoning, right? That, that would be foolish. And I think most people recognize that with regard to the difference between men and women. And like we talked about earlier, maybe there are differences why black people wind up incarcerated more than white people. And it's not the laws themselves as much as it would be the society or culture in which they live. And again, let me reiterate, and I know... I have the possibility of making some people upset with this, but but let me let me say that I love my black brothers and sisters, and I love the ones that have been thinking through this and helping shepherd my thoughts on this. And I think that they are fighting an uphill battle in their community. They're trying to help their community, and and I love that. And and it's definitely near and dear to my heart for because because of my black brothers and sisters, I, I love them, and and I know that this is this is a difficult difficult issue. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, an unattached, unemotional issue for them. 
the issue really is what, how are we going to contribute to that change? And so that's why I asked, what are you protesting? Uh, because really it goes back to something that we know inherently as Christians is that the gospel is the only thing that can change hearts. See, we are all are sinful. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful, uh, desperately wicked. How, how do we change that? Do we change that by passing different laws? No, the sin's just going to show up in different forms then. The way you create change in a society is by telling people about the Messiah who died for them, who rose again, and has actually made a possibility of regeneration in their hearts so that they are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 8. That's the only way you can get change. So when, when you go out protesting, what, what are you going to accomplish? Are you going to change a law which somehow now misdir... Let, let's, best case scenario, let's say that a law gets changed, which now all of a sudden, like let's say getting rid of the police force. Let's say you get rid of the police force, like the people in Minneapolis want to do. And remember, I'm from Minnesota, so that's, I shake my head at those things. Well, if you get rid of the police force, you're going to get rid of the police violence against black people. Good job. You fixed a problem, or did you? Is there going to be continued sin? Is there going to be more sin involved now? Maybe more unchecked sin. See, you see, huh, you, you create change in a society, even depending on what the changes are, it's, it's not going to fix the problem. As Christians, we have the only solution to the problem, and that would be sharing the gospel. So if you go to a protest, I would say, yeah, share the gospel with everyone you meet left and right because you need to. But that would be one of the only reasons I would ever want to see somebody at a protest. Now, let, let's say somebody else say, well, I would go to the protest not to necessarily, uh, not to necessarily protest police brutality versus blacks or anything like that, but, but simply to show my disgust that an image bearer of God has been killed. Well, okay. That's better. In fact, that's one of the things that Virgil Walker pointed out in his podcast is that's the biblical response is, is not upset because of the color of somebody's skin, but upset because somebody is, who is made in the image of God is, has, has been killed. And that's attacking God in effigy. So that's a righteous indignation. Well, all well and good, but you being at the protest is going to be associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. No way around that. Any, Newspaper that gets your photograph, any pictures of you on social media. And I would say, no matter how much you try to, to explain why you're at the protest, if somebody sees that you're at the protest, they're going to say, Oh, okay. They support the Black Lives Matter movement because that's what is being pushed. The, the movement, in other words, the movement is large enough that it swallows up the individual motives. So even if your motives are different, uh, in us, in going to the protest saying, you know, I'm going to be here for the biblical reasons. Well, guess what? Everybody else is there for not biblical reasons. And now by your association, you are now with them. And if somebody sees you from, let's say, your community, your high school, your job, and they say, oh, wow, that person is affiliated with that group. I don't want to go to their church because, wow, that, that crowd is just really off-putting. We, we don't like that. And I, I just think there's a tremendous, tendency to be misrepresenting Christ and to really be defaming his name because of association. Now, somebody might say, well, the Black Lives Matter movement is not, is not that bad. It's, it's okay. The Christians should be associated with that movement because it's, it's so helpful. Now, there's a lot we could talk about this. I'm just going to say it in summary fashion. 
there, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, their founders, their purpose statement, their perception, it's all, it's all sinful. It's all sinful. I'm just going to read to you, uh, the individuals who are involved with the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the leaders, if you will. And the first one is Alicia Garza. So she is a civil rights activist and a self-proclaimed Marxist, according to Wikipedia, right? So she has, you know, self-proclaimed Marxist. She's not trying to hide it. And remember, Marxism has a tremendous push. So her whole goal behind the Black Lives Matter movement is bound up in Marxism. Okay, let's let's just be clear about this. And now you need to do your due diligence and find out what Marxism is, because Marxism relates to the destruction of society, the leveling of class systems so that everyone is found up in equality. Because when you level all of the class distinctions and there's equality within society, then everyone's going to be happy and they'll live forever after. So obviously anti-God, anti-biblical. So the next of the three co-founders would be, and I'm not sure how to say her first name, but it's Patrice Cullers. So she is basically a co-founder. Her Wikipedia page says she's a co-founder and a queer activist. Okay. And I also found it interesting that it says on her Wikipedia page, this is really kind of crazy, I guess, that she's, she was involved in the Jehovah's Witnesses, but she became disillusioned with that and ended up, uh, being involved with a, um, Nigerian religious tradition, which I, I'm not familiar with, but I think I'm pronouncing this correctly is called Ifa. Ifa. And if you look up Ifa on Wikipedia, you get all this information about how it's involved with divination and cultic activity, etc. Things like that. So again, not exactly a uh, uh, helpful individual to be following. And then you have the third of the individuals, Opal Tometi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And she too has affiliations with uh, some of the more liberal bent in society and all of that. So you have these three individuals who have some pretty sketchy beginnings. Now, okay, so we we want to actually have facts, right? So if you look at their what we believe section, this Black Lives Matter, what we believe, it's it's pretty pretty Marxist, obviously. And and see the the issue is a lot of us aren't trained to think through it from their perspective. See, we have our own theological terms that that we use. So for example, in the phrase, it's the second paragraph, it says, we want to create a world where every black person has social, economic, and political power to thrive. Well, we might say, okay, that sounds good. But remember, this is coming from a Marxist viewpoint and with regard to that. Now, we go through their about us, what we believe section. There's some some huge red flags. So, for example, you have uh, about three quarters of the way through, it says we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. It also says we are self-reflexive and do the required, the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. So in other words, part of their reason to exist is to, is to essentially dismantle the the societal privilege, the class distinction of the benefits that you get from 
from operating in a way that God has designed you to operate. In other words, if you are married to one woman, so as a man, if you are married to one woman, or as a woman, if you are married to one man, that in their eyes would be a cisgender privilege. Okay? Because you are operating in, in their, not in a transsexual focus or a transgendered focus or a homosexual idea, but that is a cisgender privilege that you would get. Um, because simply by the fact that you are not attracted to the same sex or you're not transgender that, so essentially they're trying to get rid of any advantage that you would have by operating how God would have you operate further. They go on and say this, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family, family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. Okay, so again, what do they mean when they say Western prescribed nuclear family? Just cross that out and put the biblical model of family. That's what you can put there. They they are saying, because that that is what the Western world was founded upon, was biblical principle of, of family and what scripture is described. So again, you just read between the lines, and obviously the Marxist agenda is very clear here. We get rid of the class structure. In fact, this was very clear in a study I read a couple of years ago. One individual said, this was an Australian uh, children's psychologist, and he said, "Oh my god, this 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 just made me so angry." He said, "It's obvious that children who grow up in a two-parent household where the parents read to them have such an advantage over children who don't grow up in that environment. We should prohibit. We should prohibit parents from reading to their children." It's like, what in the world are you talking about in the two family household? And so, so that's the idea is that's, you know, we want to, we want to, now I don't know if that individual was associated with Black Lives Matter. I, that just popped in my mind as we were going through there. But this, this is in their purpose statement here is, is they want to destroy this nuclear family structure, to disrupt it, to make, to clear it out of the way so that something else can grow up in its place. Further, you go on, we we foster a queer-affirming network, and also we believe that all people, regardless of age, show up with the capacity to lead and learn. So in other words, it doesn't matter if you're four years old or 104, you have the opportunity to lead in their organization. That's what they're uh, saying. I'm being a little facetious there, but it's unwise, to say the least, to, to say such things. So I don't think I need to make too much comment about that. Uh, just going through, there's, there's some huge dangers with this Black Lives Matter movement and, and being associated with it. So I go back to what we were talking about earlier and the question I asked, should a Christian pro- protest and be associated with the Black Lives Matter movement? I would say minimally it's foolish, but more likely I just think it's flat out sin. Uh, to, to allow the name of Christ to be associated with such an anti-God movement. Such an anti-God movement. There's no way, no, no way to rationalize being associated with them. Now, somebody might come back and say, well, that's the official standpoint of the Black Lives Movement, but nobody ever utilizes that or nobody even knows that website exists or whatever. Well, I think more people do understand it than, than is realized. And all of the media and everybody involved in pushing the narrative is associating that core group with all of these protests. That's part, that's part of the push. So be very careful. I mean, maybe there might be a protest that isn't associated with Black Lives Matter movement that could, 
uh, work, but, but it's, it's unfortunately such a pervasive influence that I, it's very hard to find something that wouldn't be associated with that. And so it's sad, but I, I do want to warn us, uh, you know, point, posting things on our Facebook about the Black Lives Matter movement, hashtags and whatnot, and, uh, being associated with such in any capacity is just very damaging. And in so doing, you could be pointing somebody into this direction of liberation theology and the Marxist philosophies, which are so dangerous, so dangerous and much better to do like even we're doing on this podcast or what so many people have done prior in thinking through things biblically. Take the time to think through what it is that's really going on behind the scenes and work from there. At the end of the day, May God have mercy on us and remember or, or and cause us to remember that the gospel is the issue. You know, protesting sure feels good. It feels good to be a part of a religious cause. But at the end of the day, religious causes send people to hell just as much as anything else. And so we need to be sharing the gospel with people and the true hope that is found in Christ. That alone is what will cause lasting change in a society. So at the end of the day, I hope this was helpful. Again, I encourage you to check out the blog post that I have posted on my website with some of the links to social justice and the inner workings of some of the social justice movement. I, I know today is a bit of a uh, emotional episode. And so, you know, I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, I'd love to talk to you in private if you want to discuss some of these issues further. I just wanted to record this for the people who could find it helpful. And I hope that you have. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.